Welcome to the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast. This is John Halsman, trying to make sense of the fascinating planet that we live on right now. Today we're going to talk about the end of a civilization. Uh, we've had a number of discussions recently about the rise of the Anglosphere and the rise of China. And today we're going to talk about it, the decline of Europe as one of the great powers. Of course, Europe went from dominating the world to now hanging on by its fingernails to being the least of the great powers. And the AUKUS trade deal was part of that. Beneath the French histrionics and throwing of crockery um, is a very real geopolitical fear that the world is passing it by, that what's really happening is that Australia, confronted with an existential challenge, chose the Anglosphere, working with the US, the UK, Canada, New Zealand, and honorary members, India and Japan to take on the Chinese rather than work with the European Union. And amazing as it may seem, this is still a shock to many Europeans uh, who somehow believe they're still around the world, even though it's been quite a time since this has been the case. Uh, but that doesn't mean the shock is any less real. But moving ahead, what would a sensible policymaker do given this negative outcome, this shockingly negative outcome for France and the EU? It would de devise a plan to deal with what's about to happen. And in true policymaker fashion, I was asked by my friends at the Aspen Institute in Italy, who I love working with, to come up with a policy proposal for Europe. And so I did. And I said, look, it needs, first of all, they have to wake up and smell the coffee, that Europe's fantasy view that every failure will somehow lead to greater intervention, that crises will make it greater, and that success will make it greater. But whatever happens, Europe will be greater is a religion and not policy analysis. Frankly, as a political risk analyst who has the best call record out there, betting against the EU has been the easiest thing I've ever done because of this kind of blind spot about itself. Um, as I wrote into Dare More Boldly, my last book, uh, the political risk is us, that the first rule of political risk analysis is to take a good hard look in the mirror. And if the Europeans were going to do this, they would see that they still have a huge internal market. And so rather than limiting free trade deals, as the French are threatening to do with Australia, they're going to have more free trade deals because with their huge internal market, this is a gigantic magnet with the United States being protectionist, which is a ruinous policy. This gives a real competitive advantage to the EU and they should be doing free trade deals, not just with Australia, but literally with everyone they can in the Indo-Pacific is this is a card to play to move them up the great power rungs. Secondly, other than France, which can do full-spectrum military operations from high-end warfighting to low-end peacekeeping, the rest of Europe, frankly, isn't up to scratch in terms of the military. My high school could take the German, Italian, or Spanish militaries, all of which spend shockingly little on defense and have done so over generations, that if Europe wants to be taken seriously, it has to remember that the world isn't just full of carrots uh, in need of rabbits, but that sometimes sticks are also necessary to fight off the tigers in the woods that are Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. And so they need to quickly, beyond France, up their military spending by radical amounts and have a genuine autonomous army in the sense that Emmanuel Macron has called for. And then thirdly, they have to have political direction, which they don't have at the moment. You have Germany becalmed by its mercantilist neutralism toward China. You have the French going its Gaullist merry way, wanting to balance China, but not within the American umbrella in typical Gaullist fashion. And you have standard Atlanticism in Mario Draghi's Italy, Eastern Europe, and Northern Europe. In other words, you got a whole lot of nothing. You got three different policy outputs 
uh, and policy trajectories, which means you have none, which means Europe will drift along incoherently doing its own thing at the national level, but not having the heft to be a great power politically. So my plan, simple as it is, take the advantages Europe has, its huge internal market, really push the geoeconomics, spend the time and over the next generation develop a real army so that people take you seriously again and have a political impetus behind that army in terms of an actually unified foreign policy, another thing that's going to take a generation. But if Europe were actually to do this, it would stop its inevitable decline. As Lawrence of Arabia said, nothing is written, nothing is inevitable. People make history, and history can indeed be turned around, as say the Japanese did in the 19th century with the Meiji Restoration. They were in decline and came out of it very much not so. But to do this, you have to have European elites and European public opinion pulling in the same direction. And that very much is not the case at the moment. Because frankly, the degree that I have that matters most in the, and the work that I did that matters most uh, through my education was probably classics. Because with the Greeks, you can learn just about everything about human nature. And when I think of the Europeans, I think of lotus eaters. I think of Homer and the Odyssey. I think of Odysseus going to a land of dissolute people who eat fruit from the lotus tree and are lazy and don't do much of anything. And of course, this expression, lotus eaters, has been updated to mean people who've given up doing serious work in the name of enjoying beauty and parties rather than the business of statecraft anymore. And this has happened in Europe before. And to dare more boldly, I talk about Napoleon finally doing away with the glories of the Venetian Republic, because over several centuries, the Venetians got used to having fantastic parties, which they still do. Venice is absolutely one of my favorite cities in the world. And all the hype, for those of you who haven't seen it, is true. Go see it. But they gave up being serious about statecraft in favor of parties, dissolute lives, and living off the patrimony of everybody that came before them. So by the time Napoleon thunders in out of the Alps as the great young general in his brilliant Italian campaign, he literally has no Italian army or navy to fight. One of his ships gets sunk and the rest high up at the Lido, and he marches into Venice uncontested. And this is the end of Venice's great power status because it decided to commit suicide. It decided not to be serious. It decided to be lotus eaters and concentrate on the world's frivolities and enjoy the patrimony of everybody that came before them rather than continue with the hard business of statecraft. And Europe is now at this dividing line. It will have to decide one way or the other if it is going to get on with the business of statecraft or if it's going to enjoy partying for the next bit of time, because it's a beautiful place. I've lived 20 years here. Quality of life was infinitely superior to Washington. I love living in Europe, but it's utterly unaffordable. It's demographically in terrible trouble, economically sclerotic, militarily non-existent, and politically divided. And you're aware that you're living in the last vestiges of a great civilization. It certainly will last throughout my lifetime and probably the next but at the moment, the trajectory is between relative and absolute decline, heading toward absolute decline unless something is done. But to do something, you would need to have elite leadership, which to some extent Europe does, certainly in France. I think what Macron says makes sense, and I think he would agree with my plan for salvaging the EU after the AUKUS debacle. But among the European people, there is no desire to do the one thing you would have to do to make Europe a great power which is sacrifice. There's no desire for Europe to do sacrifice of any kind. 
because they have become lotus eaters like the Venetians before them and like the famous characters in the Odyssey of Homer. These are people living off the patrimony of the beauty and the wonder that came before them, but are in decline, don't much care, which is the sign of decadence being in decline and giving up any hope of solving your problems, because to do so would take money, time, effort, and sacrifice. And rather than believe in God, Europeans believe in their lifestyle and their six-week holidays, and they're not about to do anything to endanger that, even though their productivity no longer allows for six-week holidays. But tell that to a European, and they will actually be outraged. That's a sign of decadence. That's what happens to great powers in decline. And there was a fantastic survey that just came out from the European Council on Foreign Relations, a very pro-European group indeed, almost slavishly so, at the end of September, just now, looking at what Europeans thought of the brewing Cold War with China, the Sino-American Cold War, which at the top end of the geostrategic spectrum is what drives foreign policy in this amazing new era we live in. And then underneath their great powers of the latter room to maneuver, the Anglosphere, Russia, India, Japan, and the EU. But to do so, and for the EU to move up from being last among these great powers, it would actually have to come up with a plan and then make sacrifices based on that plan. And having lived here for 20 years, I can tell you that isn't going to happen because this is a group of people who've decided to worship their lifestyle and to say what, again, Louis XV did, après nous le déluge, after us, the rain. We're not even going to try to overcome the problems in front of us because that would be hard work. Isn't it better to live in this admittedly wonderful place and watch the sands come out of the hourglass? And the poll backs this up. 62% of Europeans thought a new Cold War had indeed developed between the U.S. and China, but only 15% the thought there was their country was involved. So a vast majority of Europeans, 62%, accept that there's a Cold War now between the U.S. and China, but only 15 say it directly concerns the country that they live in. So foreign policy is something done by other people, and they passively sit back and watch the world go by like a movie. I like it. I don't like it. There's a lot of that in European commentaries. I like it. I don't like it. I agree with what America did. I don't agree with what America did. What there isn't in any of these uh, commentaries is a sign of what Europe would do. If you don't like what America is doing, if you don't like what the Chinese are doing, what would Europe do differently as a great power to facilitate the world moving in its direction? You hear crickets about this because the Europeans don't want to deal with the fact that to change the world, they would have to engage with the world. And rather than master history, history is mastering them. And so they agree there's a Cold War, but only 15%, almost no one thinks that their country has much to do with it. About 60% of those Europeans polled disagreed that their country had a conflict with China. Well, of course not. And this is Germany writ large. Uh, if all, if you're an export-driven economy like Germany, the greatest export-driven economy in the world, and the Chinese are your largest market and increasingly your largest market as the market share changes and China takes more and more of your machine tool products, which in Germany are the best in the world, your automotive industry, which is fantastic, and all the consumer goods, say, at the high end that the French can produce, 
That's what you care about. Yes, you're embarrassed about what they do to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province. You wish they wouldn't have treated those nice students in Hong Kong badly. You wish they didn't put the boot down in Tibet, bully the Indians over the Himalayas, threaten the Australians over the beginnings of COVID and start a trade war because the Australians had the temerity to ask how COVID started. You wish they didn't yell at the Chinese, the Japanese in the East China Sea or say the entire South China Sea is theirs despite rulings by the International Naval Court in The Hague to the contrary, which the Chinese just, knowing who they're dealing with with the Europeans, ignored. What are the Europeans going to do? They have no navy. What are they going to do? Come and get me and enforce your ruling. Of course they're not. Of course this embarrasses them, and of course they wish that the Chinese treated human rights better. But they're not going to do anything to get in the way of the economic links they have with China. And this is what the United States slowly in a bumbling fashion has realized, that if there are three basic poles of power in the West, you have the United States on one hand, the Anglosphere on the other, and then the European Union, that the European Union at the public opinion level is neutralist. So it's wonderful that Emmanuel Macron has these great ideas and commits them to paper, but no one under him believes in them. Again, only 15% of those polled said the Cold War between the U.S. and China had anything to do with their country, and 60% of those polled disagreed that their country had any conflict with China. That would get in the way of the six-week holidays. That would get in the way of living in a museum. That would get in the way of continuing to do well, because now their principles are in line with what they really care about, which is their lifestyle. This is is decadence. This is lotus eating. And however much Macron wants to move the ball down the field, if 60% of Europeans polled say they have no problem with what China's doing, they don't mean they have no problem with what China's doing. They're making a choice. They're saying, we don't really care what China's doing as much as we care that they keep buying our stuff and as an export-driven economy in Germany, we keep everything ticking over. It's sort of embarrassing that they're bad on human rights, but we can get over that embarrassment to keep those six-week holidays coming. That is giving up. That is decadence. That is falling off the map into isolationism. That is whispering to the Americans, yeah, we'd rather side with you, but it's too much hassle. We'll sit and watch this as we have now in NATO from afar for about a generation. We haven't spent any money on defense because that would take money away from our safety net systems, which are ridiculously plush. Um, you know, Mrs. Merkel gets this right, that 5% uh, of the Europe comprises 5% of the demography of the world, contributes something under 20% of the world's GDP, but consumes 50% of the world's social spending. And of course, this isn't, can't be continued ad nauseum, but the Europeans will fight to the death to keep that social spending coming and to be buffeted from the realities of capitalism in the world. Not things that you think of when you think of India, Japan, Russia, China, or the United States. They have simply taken a holiday from history. That's what they care about. And that's the reason for these numbers. In Italy, for instance, where I live, 67% of the people polled didn't see a great power competition with China as involving them. Two-thirds of Italians say, yeah, we'll sit this one out. So far from the platitudes about the alliance working, the United States, confronted by this incoherence, this isolationism, this neutralism, did what Americans do. As Tom Hanks put it, in Hollywood, people talk like hippies, but they act like gangsters. And the Americans are ruthlessly pragmatic. We're a very pragmatic people. And seeing that Europe isn't going to do anything, 
The United States didn't get angry. It ends with a shrug. The United States shrugs and says, okay, Europe will be neutralist. Who can I work with? And this explains AUKUS, because the Anglosphere have a very different view of Chinese encroachments in the Indo-Pacific. Australia, which lived there, Japan, which lived there, India, which lived there, the last two being honorary members of the Anglosphere. Australia, New Zealand, Canada, dealing with China more and more, the United States and the UK. They have a very different view, are on one page to contain the Chinese, to stop their adventurism and expansionism in the Indo-Pacific, the key region in the, in the future of the world, where all the risk is and all the reward, almost all the geostrategic risk and all the future economic growth. That's why political risk firms like mine focus on it so intensely. But the bottom line from all this is the United States shrugged and did what Tom Hanks said, acted like gangsters, saying, look, we'll be ruthlessly pragmatic. We'll work with who we have to work with here. And that is the Anglosphere, hence AUKUS. The reason the French are outraged is because they simply don't play. That is the price you pay for lotus seeding. That is the price you pay for not having an army, not having a coherent political view, not having a coherent trading view even. If the EU doesn't do this, the bottom line is the world isn't going to yell at them. It will shrug and simply go on without it. That's what happened in Venice until it became palpably clear hundreds of years after the fact when Napoleon tied his navy up at the Lido and marched in unopposed because there was no army. Too much champagne, too many parties in Venice, not enough statecraft. That's what's happening to Europe now. This is indeed, and in Europe, every time there's a hiccup, they say, in every meeting I go to, sonorously, this is the fork in the road. AUKUS really is the fork in the road for the history and future of Europe. And based on these European Council on Foreign Relations numbers, you see a disconnect from French Gaullists who would actually like to try to resurrect the European project, divided from European Mercantilists who really don't want there to be a political or geostrategic dimension to Europe, and if there is a relatively small one compared to commercial interests, both within Germany and within Europe. So there's division there, but it's the people among public opinion, the only way to gain an army over a generation, the only way to gain political unity over a generation would be to win over huge swaths of Europe. And that simply isn't going to happen with a bunch of lotus eaters counting the days until their next vacation. This is decadence. This is the end of a wonderful civilization. And I say this with no happiness. I've spent two thirds of my adult life in Europe. And in terms of lifestyle, I have loved every minute. It has given me a home. It has given me love. It has given me children. I love all these things about Europe. I do not speak about Europe as so many American skeptics do, hating it. I love Europe, but more than loving Europe, I use my head rather than my heart as a realist. And I'm a historian. And I know a fading power when I see it. Thanks very much for listening to the, our talk today about Lotus Eating Europe. Um, for those of you who haven't subscribed yet, please do. I'm gratified so many of you have subscribed to the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, our Patrick Henry podcast, our great book serialization of To Dare More Boldly, which so many of you have been interested in. That is incredibly gratifying to me. For those of you who have already signed up, we now ask you to take that next, next step. Substack works on the honor system. And so many of you have, have gratified me by being so interested in all the work we're doing. More and more, we're putting on Substack. I think this is the wave of the future, the disruptive technology that will actually move things forward in, in, in place of newspapers. So I'm, I love this. But it only works on the honor system. 
Those of you who love what we're doing, I ask that before we move all the content over, as we inevitably will, to paid subscribers that you indeed pay. There are two simple ways to do so for the price of $7 a month, what we call here in the office the Starbucks price. For the price of one Starbucks a month, you can sign up for our monthly subscription. It's $84 a year. And then the hyper-economical one, the Thatcherite model, which is just $70 if you pay up front for the whole year, which I think, frankly, be the one that I'd sign up for. Um, in both cases, please do sign up. We don't want you to miss out on the work as we move on explaining the rise and fall of all these powers in this fascinating world that we live in because I'd love you to keep taking the journey with me. I've enjoyed it so much. And I think in Substack, we have a great future together. Thanks a lot and on to the next.